Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for the Doc NYC Festival. On this episode, I talk to Frank Marshall and Ryan Suffern, the producer and director behind the new documentary, Finding Oscar. The film centers on a massacre that took place during Guatemala's Civil War in 1982. The Guatemalan army attacked the jungle hamlet of Dos Eres in retaliation for a guerrilla strike. This took place at a time when the army enjoyed the support of the Reagan administration. We've been slow to understand that the defense of the Caribbean and Central America against Marxist-Leninist takeover is vital to our national security in ways we're not accustomed to thinking about. The Guatemalan army commandos, known as Kabilas, killed around 300 residents of Dos Eres and dumped their bodies in a well. Finding Oscar focuses on two men, Oscar and Ramiro, who survived the killing as young boys and were raised by the families of soldiers without understanding their history. The film chronicles the efforts of human rights activists, including forensic anthropologist Freddie Pecciarelli, who set out to find Oscar 30 years later. How do you tell someone you're not who you think you are, and your life up till now has been a lie? Finding Oscar played last year at Telluride, Doc NYC, and other festivals, it's now being released theatrically by Film Rise. Producer Frank Marshall is better known for his partnership with Kathleen Kennedy, his wife. The Kennedy Marshall Company has produced Oscar-nominated films such as The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Munich, Seabiscuit, and The Sixth Sense. Frank has a long history working with Steven Spielberg, who serves as the executive producer on Finding Oscar. Director Ryan Suffern started out as Spielberg's assistant and now runs the documentary division of Kennedy Marshall. I interviewed them in April in New York City. I started by asking Ryan to tell us more about Oscar from the film's title. Oscar Ramirez is a guy living in Framingham, Massachusetts, Guatemalan-born, who in his early 30s gets a phone call out of the blue one day from a special prosecutor in Guatemala who says, you don't know me, but I've been looking for you for almost 20 years because I think you might be one of the lone survivors of a massacre that the Guatemalan military carried out in Guatemala where they wiped out an entire village, including your entire family. And if you are who I think you are, you have no memory of this because you were only three at the time and you were abducted by one of the soldiers commanding this special forces troop. And the person you think of as your father figure is actually responsible for helping to murder your entire family. So it's kind of the definition of an existential crisis in this phone call. And the story of finding Oscar is that juxtaposition of, of Oscar receiving this news and this epic decades-long search to find him, which starts in Guatemala and ends in the suburbs of Boston. Frank, I understand that you were the person on the team who first heard this story. How did you hear of Oscar Ramirez? Well, I have a very good childhood friend who I went to high school with in Newport Beach, California, named Scott Greathead, 
who is a uh, very prominent uh, human rights attorney here in New York and does a lot of pro bono work in uh, Central America. So Freddie, Freddie Petrarelli called Scott Greathead when Oscar uh, needed help or needed representation for this event, uh, for this inquiry. Oscar uh, at that time was living in Framingham, Massachusetts. He's an undocumented worker. He gets this other extraordinary piece of news, and it not only raises questions about his past, but it also opens up questions about his present and how he's going to move forward in this world as an undocumented worker. So Scott Greathead is someone who can help him build a case for asylum in the yes, U.S. Yes, yes. And Scott Scott was is well known down there for doing these kind of cases. And so he took on Oscar's case. And over the years that he was working on it, he you know, occasionally would tell me about it. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, but I never thought about it as a movie. But that changed a few years ago when the lawyer Scott Greathead told Frank that Oscar Ramirez was coming to California. He was giving a victim statement in a court case against one of the Guatemalan soldiers who had perpetrated the Dos Eras massacre. On that trip, Frank met Oscar. So we had dinner one night, and Oscar is just the most amazing, wonderful, you know, charming, uh, easygoing uh, family man. And I just thought to myself, it, it, what an incredible story he's gone through. And I didn't know what the story was, or I didn't know how to tell it, but I just thought this could be a great story. And, and we, you know, hopefully we could figure out how to tell it, which is why I love documentaries. You don't have your script. You start with this idea and then you try and find the story. So I called Ryan. Some people might think that's a terrible thing about documentaries <laughs> uh, compared to starting with a script, especially a producer. <laughs> well, I, I find this is sort of, a, this is kind of a vacation for me because, I, you know, it, it's so freeing and it's, you know, for me, an exciting way to, to try and find a story. Um, so I, I called Ryan that night when I got home and I said, grab your camera. Here's my friend's number. They're downtown. Go ride out with them to Riverside and just shoot and talk to them and see what you get. And so Ryan did that. He had no idea what the story was until he got in the car. So kind of an extraordinary thing about Oscar is he's been living his own life just trying to make his way, raise a family. He learns that a lot of what he believes about his life is false. And I wonder if you can talk about how, you know, how he took on that news. Well, I think he's still taking on that news in a lot of ways. I think this is something that Oscar will probably grapple with in one way or another for his whole life. And yet I think, interestingly enough, you know, I, I had a, th my, my daughter's now five, my eldest daughter, but she was three for an entire year that I was making this story about this three-year-old taken, uh, ab you know, abducted by this soldier. And that, the, the reality of having my daughter ever present be that age, you know, really made me all too aware that just this idea of Oscar being too young to remember doesn't mean he was too young to experience mm. what is arguably, you know, the most traumatic thing a child could experience, not only being taken from your home and, and raised by complete strangers in a strange land, but also more than likely witnessing the, the, the murdering of your entire family and, and in some 
capacity or another, particularly when we hear the the older boy, Ramiro's uh, firsthand accounting of, of seeing that happen, particularly to his his mother and, and Ramiro also went through this experience. He's unrelated to Oscar, and but he was a couple years older than Oscar. Yeah, so so Ramiro was five at the time. And now my daughter's five. So I, and, and in a similar way, I have even more empathy for, for, for both boys, just being a father, really. And, and so I think, you know, the fact that Oscar doesn't have any memories of this trauma in some ways probably speaks to our inherent survival instincts as a species that he has been rewired at a very young age to protect himself from this reality. And and in some ways, I think that might have actually possibly helped him and make him a better candidate for getting this kind of existential news that your whole life as you know it is is a lie. Because I think that would, what, that, that would damage, I think, someone else like to your to your core hmm. to get that. And yet he is he's managed you know, he has a lot of curiosity about this subject, but he also still th- thinks of this soldier as a father figure because he can't separate not only being raised in this family that, you know, put the oldest son military hero on this pedestal. And see, this soldier died very soon after bringing Oscar back to his family. And so Oscar was raised by this soldier's family, not the soldier directly. So he doesn't really have any memories of this soldier, but he has an idea of him. And as he's had to take that history and juxtapose it with this new reality, uh, he also knows that it was this soldier who potentially saved him. Who saved him. You know, because if not for this soldier, he's in his mind, he, he's not alive today. Frank enlisted Ryan to start filming with Oscar. My introduction was Frank saying, you got to hear this story and, and, and join these guys. And so I meet Scott, Freddie Petrarelli, the executive director of the Forensic Anthropology Foundation of Guatemala, and, uh, and Oscar, the, these three men who I'd never met, and spend the day with them and, and film a little bit before and after the trial and sit in the courtroom as Oscar re- uh, reads this prepared statement as a victim in, in the sentencing. And, and I came home and I, I said to my wife, I go, I, I've just filmed the end to the most fascinating story. Like, I know how this story ends, which is, you know, as documentarians right. not working with scripts, we usually have to wait for, you know, life to evolve and give us our third act or, you know, uh, and here was, here's this subject of the story participating in the very justice system that was at the heart of the search for him for decades. And, and that search for justice starts in Guatemala because there's a decades-long, 36-year-long uh, conflict that impunity reigned in, in Guatemala and, and, and still does in, in many ways, where the, the government and its military carried out horrific acts, of which I knew nothing of when I got introduced to the story, and so it's been a real education process for me to learn about what happened there. And, and, and our telling of the story was to also bring that education to probably similar unknowing and unassuming North Americans that, that a genocide 
has really taken place in our, in our backyard and that our, our government had a, had a culpable role in, in supporting the Guatemalan government as it murdered and, and disappeared over 200,000 of its own citizens. And a lot of this was driven by the one woman who had lost her brother. Yeah, so Oralena Farfan, who is really just is the rock star kind of human rights activist at the very center of this story, her brother, who worked at a university. And, and so many of the people who were disappeared were anybody that was perceived as a threat to the government. It, it could be people who were journalists, union leaders, university professors. Uh, and so when they disappeared, her brother, they really created a, an activist who was fearless because she, because of the loss that she had felt and, and started a group of others who were going to go and try to find these loved ones. And in doing so, try to find justice. They did so not ever really thinking that they'd probably bring anyone to trial, but justice has a lot of different forms. It's not necessarily just putting somebody in prison. Justice is also just an acknowledgement of the truth, an acknowledgement that this happened. The, the Guatemalan society, because the government has never acknowledged the truth commission that came out after there was a peace accord in the late 90s, there was a, a truth commission, and the government of Guatemala never acknowledged that truth commission. They don't teach this chapter of Guatemala's history to to students. Um, and so these activists and these anthropologists and, and these now prosecutors who've gotten involved are really searching for, for justice in many forms. And Oscar, this little boy who was the living proof to try and hold these soldiers accountable, becomes the, the epitome of that search. We'll be back after the break with more from Frank Marshall and Ryan Suffern talking about Finding Oscar and the Kennedy Marshall Documentary Division. If you're in New York City this spring, please join us on Tuesday nights for Stranger Than Fiction at the IFC Center. Each week, we present a documentary sneak preview or classic, followed by a conversation with a director or special guest. The spring season runs from April 18th to June 6th. Highlights include Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, about a family-run bank in New York's Chinatown defending itself against aggressive prosecution. Director Steve James talked about the film on Pure Nonfiction, Episode 19, just before its world premiere at TIFF. Abacus will screen at Stranger Than Fiction on May 9th. And on May 23rd, the series will present Errol Morris's new film, The B-Side, about photographer Elsa Dorfman. To learn more about the full Stranger Than Fiction lineup, go to purenonfiction.net and click on events. Frank Marshall has an incomparable track record of producing Hollywood franchises, from Indiana Jones to Back to the Future to the Jason Bourne films. In recent years, He's gotten more involved with documentaries. He was an executive producer on Alex Gibney's film, The Armstrong Lie, among others. I asked Frank what pulled him into nonfiction. Well, it, it actually comes from um, my taking a documentary 
film class back at UCLA. I, I didn't major in film, but I took a bunch of film classes, and I took the documentary class, and Robert Flaherty, I was just completely knocked out by Robert Flaherty, and I think it's called The Louisiana Story. Was, mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. And first of all, the visuals are spectacular, but that it was a true story that this was not fiction, this was not... I mean, there are stories... Although the Louisiana story does have some fictional elements. Yes, but. yes. and But it was... I mean, you have stories that are based on real events, but, you know, even Sully, we had to condense the six-month hearing into two days. Right. But that there were real people in it. I was just fascinated by this. And the first movie that I ever attempted to make was a documentary. Uh, my cousin, who was a classical guitar player, mm. and I thought, well, it'd be interesting to see how he rehearses. And So when was this, that you're doing this? 67 or 66, 67. And uh, my dad wrote, my dad was a composer, and he wrote a concerto for my cousin, who was 15 and played uh, cla- an amazing classical guitar, studied with Segovia. And he was, they did this concerto and they played with a live orchestra. And I thought, well, it'd be great to cover this. And so I just, that was sort of my introduction. And then I met Peter Bogdanovich and I went this other way. Uh-huh. Um, and so I've always did, had. Did you indeed shoot that? Uh, I did. I don't, it was eight millimeter. I don't have it. Oh, I don't, yeah. I, I mean, I have bits and pieces of it. And, I, you know, you, in those days, when you're. You lose stuff. 19 years old, you don't think about saving things. <laughs> but I've always loved and I've always been a fan. I was on the doc committee at the academy 20 years ago and, you know, sat in there and I just love. I didn't notice in your credit list you, you were a producer on The Last Waltz. I was that- a line producer for the um, studio uh-huh. shoot and, again, was fascinated by you know, just sitting around and waiting for the members of the band to decide that they wanted to talk to Marty. (laughs) And that was usually all night. (laughs) But just the process of not knowing, maybe it was just felt so refreshing and like a vacation where I didn't know what the next shot was going to be and and where it would lead. And, And then being able to piece together shots and interviews and this very uh, exciting way to tell a story. So I've always been a fan, and as I say, I, I've watched a lot of documentaries, and I just never got the opportunity to make one until Mike Tolan called me and said, ESPN is doing this series called 30 for 30, and they want 30 filmmakers to tell sports stories of that are meaningful to them that they were associated with. That call led Frank to direct the ESPN documentary Right to Play about the Olympic athlete Johan Olav Koss who founded a global NGO for children. Frank brought on Ryan as the editor. Ryan comes from Chicago and got into filmmaking from the bottom as a production assistant. Through a stroke of good fortune, he wound up as Steven Spielberg's assistant. One of my duties working for Steven as his kind of shadow on set was carrying a video camera with me all the time. My predecessors who had the job before me, that was just something Steven loves to shoot tons of home movies of himself. And he likes, you know, they bring the EPK crew in with the nice big cameras, only a, a s- select few days. And there's so many kind of candid moments that can be captured. And I thought, wait a minute, I get to document Steven Spielberg making movies? I'm like, that's awesome. And it was right at the time that like prosumer HD was coming out. I, my first film with, with, with Spielberg was The, uh, the Terminal. 
And so um, the next film was War of the Worlds. And I, I said, Stephen, we've got to get an HD camera. So I just kept running with this, like, let's, let's do this, you know, but never thinking of myself as a documentary filmmaker. I was still chasing this dream of being, I just, I want to be a, a director. And so I did three movies with Stephen. I left to write a screenplay for DreamWorks that I had pitched to Stephen and get a call that they're making Indiana Jones 4 and that they'd like for me to come back just to do the documentary. So that's when I'd met Frank through working with his wife, Kathy, but I had, I got to actually collaborate with him because there was such an appetite for everything Indiana Jones 4 that I was tasked with editing my behind-the-scenes footage so we could give it out to the entertainment tonights of the world of Indy's first day on set or Shia LaBeouf. And, and we, had, we had done behind-the-scenes since Raiders, so I was involved in the first three, and so it was kind of a natural when I had somebody I could, you know, now we were on video and we didn't have to worry about 16 and uh-huh. all that stuff that was such a pain before. And Ryan had, Stephen was so comfortable with Ryan being around, it was fantastic. So we just shot and shot and shot. Yeah. And it, I mean, you guys really kind of invented yeah. behind the scenes long before there was, you know, DVD special features. Like, I think you, it seemed like you, George, and Stephen knew you were, we were making history and making this. Yeah, these it movies. started with George. George did it on Star Wars, and then he said, you got to do this on Raiders. And, you know, I was trying to save money. I had a budget. <laughs> and George said, no, we're, you know, we're going to do this. And, you know, I have to take a crew around the world and everything. And we did. And, he, you know, Lucasfilm paid for it. Shooting on 16. Yeah, shooting on 16 and getting the film. And he, we hired a kid out of SC to direct it and do it. And it's fantastic. And thank God we did it. And But we got used to doing it. I did it on Poltergeist. And then we did it on E.T. And then so we established our own sort of behind-the-scenes duck units and then there was Ryan, and so that's, uh, and then also you got to say that you were putting together the, the home movies for all of us, too, when we... Well, yeah, you, well, so I, you know, I turn in my screenplay, we finish Indy 4, I turn in the screenplay for DreamWorks the day before the Writers Guild strike, and then uh, don't work, don't collect a paycheck for a year and a half. So when Frank said, called me up, like, hey, I got a project for you, I was like, thank God, I need a gig. And it's like, I, you know, I need you to cut together my daughter's slideshow for her birthday party. And I was like, <laughs> that's not necessarily the call I was hoping for, but all right, let's make that slideshow the best damn slideshow we can make it. And, and then I remember you came over to my apartment and we were working on it. That's and you're right, like, yeah. you're like, you know, I'm going to, I'm doing this thing for ESPN. Do you, I'm going to be direct. I'm going to Africa. Do you, do you want to edit it? And I'm like, I'm like, okay. Like, I didn't think of myself as the editor because I had self-taught myself. I didn't really think of myself as a documentarian, but definitely didn't think of myself as an editor. But I was like, I need that paycheck. So let's make that documentary. Uh, and that was like a two-year process because these things tend to take a while. The power of saying yes. Yes. Making a film takes a lot of energy, whether you're making Jurassic World or making a documentary film. And there is a difference, however, in the audience that Jurassic World reaches, not to mention the money that it generates versus the audience and money a documentary can make, which is even the most successful documentary, you know, a much uh, lower ceiling. So I wonder how you reconcile that in putting energy into documentaries. 
I'm, I'm a storyteller. The most rewarding, one of the most rewarding moments for me was standing on the stage in Telluride with 200 people and saying, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. I'd like you to meet Oscar and Romero and having them come out and the place go absolutely crazy. 200 people. That was one of the most rewarding filmmaking moments I've ever had. It was it was a palpable moment. I mean, the the film ends with the this incredible re- reunion of these these in person of these two boys now men, and and there's literally a walking off into the distance of of snow covered Winnipeg. The irony is that both of these both of these boys ended up in in snow covered places, <laughs> but they walk off into the distance as just two guys on the side of the road that you would never suspect have this incredible history. And they walked off into the distance right up onto the stage in Telluride, and it was amazing. And so that's, you know, for me, that's, that's what it's all about. It's, it's entertaining, but it's also, in this case, it's, it's uh, informing, shining a light on things, telling stories that people don't know anything about. Um, and if we break even, I'm happy. But I'm keeping my day job as well. <laughs> I want to thank Frank Marshall and Ryan Suffern for speaking with me. Their film, Finding Oscar, is being released theatrically by Film Rise. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach at the MFA Social Documentary Program. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. If you're in New York, check out our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at IFC Center. The spring season begins April 18th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.